The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're doing something a little different today than we generally do, and that is... Well, a lot different, and this is going to be fun. And I'm telling you right now, folks, you, you don't need just a sheet of paper. You're going to need a whole legal pad after you get through listening to this show because, and maybe two pens, I don't know. But after listening to what we're doing today, I've got two of the smartest gentlemen that I've ever met that we're merging two shows together for the fun of it and for the first time. One of them is Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm, which this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg's time slot in his show for today. But he was, I don't know, <laughs> gracious enough or crazy enough to invite the host of A Place for Veterans, Dr., I should say, Lieutenant Colonel Retired, Dr. Don Moeller. And he does our show on A Veterans Place. And these are two of the smartest guys I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with and and talking to for months now. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, Philip Forsberg, Lieutenant Colonel, retired. Um, he knows more about military stuff than most active duty military folks do. And his hero, I can't say he's exactly Atlanta's hero, but Philip's hero is a guy named General Sherman. And I think he visited Atlanta one time. Now, we flip over on the other side, and we've got a guy that he he would do more than postman. He was in Vietnam. He was a medic, and we know what medics, uh, the word goes out, hey, doc. And Don's ears perked up, and then he was off to the races to save a life. And he's still doing it. And Don has a, he, a poor boy just hadn't grown up yet. And he keeps trying and trying. And one of these days, eventually he will. He uh, came back from being a medic, went to dental school, became a dentist and an oral surgeon. And then he decided, you know, I think I want to be an MD as well. So... It takes half a sheet of paper to put all of his credentials down past his name. And uh, we're so fortunate to have him as the host of a veteran's place. And this is like this is like putting two Sherman tanks together, I think. So I'm going to turn it over since it's Phil's show. Phil, good morning and welcome again, as always, to America's Web Radio. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, to have uh, co-hosting this show or as a guest appearance on this show a man who over the past week has become such a fast friend of mine. I've, I've never laid eyes on him. But uh, I will tell you over the phone, we have discovered, and that last night I think we, we the comment came out, that we have the same DNA. We have a lot of similar personality traits. I'm a great deal younger than uh, Dr. Moeller, but, uh, well, 10 years. But uh, in any event... <laughs> Whose leg uh, are you pulling? What a, what a, <laughs> well, uh, but what a wonderful opportunity to have. It. And uh, just, uh, uh, you know what, uh, I think we need to do that uh, moment of silence. Yes, sir. We'll do that right now, and then we'll come back to uh, the dynamic duo on America's Web Radio. And we always do this on any of our shows that are with regard or involving the military or our first responders. 
And so let's take a moment to have a silent prayer for them. Then we'll come back and make sure your heart's beating. Thank you and amen. And uh, all of our thoughts and prayers go out to all of our veterans, as well as those on active duty right now. And as many of you know, I have a son on active duty and uh, not liking what's been going on with China playing games with us. But we're going to make sure that you're well and ready to go, and we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, Dr. Muller, can you do your thing right now and check everybody that's listening and make sure their heart is beating? Not if I don't want to have my license suspended. I just, if you can hear me, high probability that your heart's still beating. Okay, well, we're in good shape. (laughs) And uh, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to the host of Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg. And it's all yours, Phil. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Uh, folks, uh, I hope you get a lot out of this. Uh, so, you know, listening to, to uh, Dave Moxley uh, explaining uh, who uh, Don Moeller is, uh, I thought he must have his stories, uh, you know, somehow jumbled. This guy was was a medic in Vietnam and served in Desert Storm, and this guy was a dentist and a doctor, and it, you know it, uh, it was just kind of confusing. And it, come to find out, every word of that is true. And uh, so, since this is our show about Desert Storm and Desert Shield. So we'll, uh, we'll cover a little bit of our, uh, of our time over there. Uh, I arrived in, uh, Desert Storm, or Desert Shield rather, in the, the lovely kingdom of Saudi Arabia in, uh, on the 23rd of September of 1990. Uh, you know, you'll remember that Saddam Hussein, uh, invaded Kuwait on the 2nd of August of 1990. And it took roughly two months for me to be firmly uh, implanted in the sand there. Uh, when I heard on the radio that Saddam had invaded Kuwait, uh, my response was, who cares? But uh, a couple months later, I was caring deeply about it. Um, now, uh, tell me, uh, Doc, when did you uh, arrive in Desert Storm, or Desert Shield, rather? When did you arrive uh, in Desert Storm? Approximately, the, like around the twenty second, twenty third. It's it. You know, you get the time lag change. Sure, but uh, I do remember that one of the docks in our tent had. We were at Cement City. Had brought a uh, little plastic Christmas tree with some battery operated lights, and he said, "We're going to celebrate Christmas Eve, regardless of it being war." So it was close to Christmas Eve, and I think we'd been there a day or two. So I, we probably were at Cement City at the same time. Oh, yeah. I uh, I used to have to go over to Cement City uh, because we were under 18th Airborne Corps. 
and uh, that's of course you know until they uh, departed uh, in haste for Rafa shortly after you got there uh, they were uh, they were at headquartered at Cement City and uh, yeah and do you remember the fine lime dust that was all over everything in Cement City yeah 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 it was like fairy powder it was wonderful <laughs> Every, yeah, everything sort of took on a haze to it. Uh, and for those that don't know, it was, it was called Cement City because it was at a Portland cement concrete plant that, uh, that, you know, essentially manufactured the Portland cement and, um, and which is a, a wonderful commodity to have there in Saudi Arabia since there are no trees, uh, nothing's made out of wood. Those things that may be made out of wood are, uh, extremely precious. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so Cement City is where they got all their building material. And I understand their, their soil is typically not sand like you find on a beach. It's more like cat box gravel. So they actually had, the Saudis actually had to buy sand, uh, to make their concrete. But, uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of a nasty place. I was always happy to get out of there. It was amazing 
to stand in the aisle and look back at all the troops and see uh, each of my soldiers sitting in a seat there with uh, with the barrel of their M16 basically popping up over the seat in front of them. Uh, just I see all these gun barrels. Uh, you know, that's a lot of weapons on a, on a commercial flight. And, uh, when, I, and I, when I went through the Apparently, they didn't inform the ground crew at, uh, at in Maine when we arrived from from Benning, and uh, when we got off the aircraft, I was the ranking guy, so I walked through the the uh, scanner, whatever that thing is, and the, the two uh, police guys, airport security, said we're going to have to see what you got, and I go, I'll tell you, and I pulled out a pistol, and they almost crapped themselves, and they said, you have a gun, and I turned around, and everybody had their weapons, you know, we didn't leave on the plane, I said, show them your guns, ladies and gentlemen, and every single guy put a gun in the air, they almost passed out, <laughs> they had no idea, and it was a chartered flight, <laughs> that was a memorable event. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, uh, I can imagine. We were not allowed to get off the airplane, either in Bangor, Maine, or uh, in uh, Rome. Uh, and, uh, of course, I, you know, I insisted that I get off in Rome, but the military police put me back on. Um, but I was just kidding. The, uh, but we didn't, we didn't get off. But I will say that, uh, Flying into uh, landing at Dahran, the crew uh, found out that I was a pilot, and uh, they invited me to sit up on the flight deck of this uh, 747-200 uh, Flipper New Horizons. So I sat in one of the uh, observer seats, uh, and I thought, this is amazing. It's the first time I've been, you know, on the flight deck of a commercial airliner, and uh, it happens to be a 747, and uh, I got a pistol under my arm, uh, and <laughs> they've invited me to come into the cockpit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It was a little strange. I remember my first impression when, uh, when the door opened, uh, at Dahran, I was standing right there. They opened the door, and uh, I was hit with this wave of. It was midnight, and it it just felt like somebody was uh, had turned on a massive heater, you know, and was forcing this hot air into the plane. And I was the first thing I thought was, "What does it cost them to heat this place?" You know. <laughs> Getting off the plane in Vietnam was a little different. When they opened the doors, the humidity and heat came in and grabbed you. And uh, then you got the ride to the 90th Repo Depot through uh, looking through the sides of the bus with heavy-gauge steel to prevent grenades from coming in. It was, was, you know, it was my second time arriving in a war zone. So in a way, you kind of knew what to expect. Yeah, expect the unexpected. Uh, well, wonderful. And it, so we just, uh, uh, it was, it was, uh, I don't know. So there's some things I didn't even want to talk about. But we, we did, we had a saying there, and I think I've said it here before. It's lovely in Saudi Arabia. There's a pretty girl behind every tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will tell you that ground was like concrete. Uh, it's mostly like yeah. being on the moon. I I can't imagine uh, a harder dirt anywhere, even lava and rock. Uh, I part of my uh, job was uh, driving a bulldozer. I, I know it's odd for an oral surgeon to do that, but I had experience from being enlisted, and uh, so I was trying to dig. Uh, emplacements for the scuds and uh boy that was brutal i mean the the dirt did not the ground it wasn't dirt 
the, the ground did not coil up. You had to just chip down an inch at a time. It was brutal. And when we set the tents up trying to drive a tent stake in, they didn't even bother with wood tent stakes. They were like, I don't know, steel, steel spikes. And yeah, the, they, what they the, were actually, Doc, those, those tent stakes were actually uh, uh, large pieces of rebar that were bent at an angle. And yeah, drive them in. Yeah, we actually had a large, uh, like, uh, I don't know, gasoline powered or electric or whatever it was. It was, a, it was a drill, and we had one drill with one bit, and we drilled every hole for every tent stake that we put out there uh, with this drill, and we had to build our own uh, city. And when we were done putting up the tents, then we had to fill sandbags, and they sandbag walls around all the tents. Yeah, we did something similar, except we didn't have a drill or sandbags. <laughs> we we had with the poor nurses. God bless them in the in their female, uh, you know, techs. That the sledgehammers that they were were huge, and so we get our tents and their tents and we got the good old army teamwork going and uh and then uh we didn't have any sandbags uh essentially until uh very late uh, or just when the war was about to start so uh that was a, a real fest there trying to fill those Well, uh, yeah, and, you know, they gave us this concrete shell of a building to live in while we were setting up our tent, and then it was going to be our offices. Our, well, what our, basically, we had an orderly room for each person. And it was the originally intent of this, of this concrete building. It had no windows or doors in it. They were just holes. Uh, it was supposed to be the meteorological uh, station for the airport that they were building there at King Fond. And um, so we would go in there after we would work all day in the hot sun, filling sandbags and making these sandbag walls as the uh, as this concrete shell of a building would absorb all the heat from the sun all day. And then when the sun went down, we would go and sleep in this essentially concrete oven while it got cooler outside. Uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of a yeah, it was a. You know, when someone says <laughs> you can see back. the Holy Land for under twenty five cents a day, next time don't go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, and the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I looked everywhere near the Ur Chaldees. I said, "Hey, this is this tour might work out anyway, but it's going to be a little bit of a drive and a five ton to get there." <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, anyway, I, I don't know why we didn't sleep outside. It wasn't like it was going to rain because in September it hadn't rained there since March. So, uh, you know, it didn't start raining until about sometime in November. Uh, and they had a few, you know, a few cloud bursts. But you know what? That, well, we that didn't work that lucky. Out. We, we had a, some doctors who, who named their tent the, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, that's a true story. And we were right, you know, the big coal ship that sank, you know, and so our yeah. tent was next to theirs. <laughs> For some reason, two days later, it rained and flooded their tent. And I went, you know, you retired, so you went to bed. I slept pretty soundly, and uh, I woke up, and the population of our GP large had doubled. And we had the entire medical crew, including the nurses, bucking next to us. I had no idea. You woke up. You, you didn't. You didn't know where you were. And that, I said, "What are you doing in here?" I said, are, "We got flooded out." They go, "What are you talking about? This is a desert." So I got up to look, and sure enough, they had a foot of foot of water that had flooded their tent. So they still would change the name of their their tent from the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> That's funny. Well, uh, yeah, we uh, we really enjoyed our uh, our 
living space there was quite a quite something. Now they they sent you up forward, right? Uh, uh, when the when the big right right the ground the, right we so we were up at uh, KKMC KK right we we that was where we set up a uh, uh, I guess staging area and uh, then before when they you know they kept bombing and then our air force uh, did and then uh, when they got there were some false starts so we spent some nights just sleeping under the dues of the trucks five times whatever and uh, then when they said it's time to jump so then we just got in the trucks and drove out we were already packed up for probably about three days we, all the tents were down and everything and then we uh, go ahead uh, I, I don't have a clue where I was I I I drove a five-ton, uh, uh, a 923, I believe it is, with a deployable medical unit. I think I had one of the surgical suites behind it. And they didn't have enough uh, enlisted folks and designated drivers. So, you know, I, I'd driven trucks before, and large trucks. And so not super tractor trailers, but large enough to be a truck. So at any rate, uh, I, drove, I drove that all the way uh, before we stopped. And we were en route to go above Baghdad, and the war ended. So uh, that that was that. Yeah. Okay, cease work, pencils down, right? And when they said you could leave there, I said cease work, pencils down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so uh, when they told you you could leave, did you... Uh, Asked to stay a few extra days on permissive TDY. Well, it's funny you you ask because after the war we went down, we turned we returned to a area. It wasn't no, it, yeah, it went to KKMC, but everything except a couple units had pulled out. But I was studying for my uh, medical part one of the medical exams. Uh, it's a long story, but so uh, basically they were short as a couple seats on the truck going south to Cement City, and uh, they said, well, you, you'll just have to stay here, sir. So I was in a little medium uh, tent by myself in the middle of the desert. I had some sea rats and some water. Well, I, I was able to study like 20 hours a day. And I didn't bother to contact them for five days. So I was out there like seam, seam, alabeam in the middle of the desert by myself and loving it. And I thought uh, I was getting, I had a duffel bag full of medical books and a duffel bag full of my clothes. And so I was, I was just studying like crazy. And, uh, finally a deuce appeared on the horizon and some guy came and said, are you aware that your unit is like, down in Cement City, and I said, yeah. I said, I don't have a truck, and so I can't get down there, and it, and you're the ones that left me here, so are you here to take me home? And they thought, they said, well, we thought you would be a little bit more anxious to get out of here, and I said, no, take your time and come back in five more days. <laughs> well, when I got down to Cement City, it was horrible down there, all jammed in, and you know, revisiting <laughs> a nasty place twice. So I that you mentioned, yeah, I did enjoy uh, about a, a week up there by myself in the middle of the desert. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm loving this, absolutely loving it, and I'm sure our listeners are too, but we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg and Lieutenant Colonel Retired Don Moeller. And... Uh, <laughs> You all have set a new trend, and I love the new trend. So we'll be back right after this. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. 
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. I think I just had an epiphany, or whatever it's called, that uh, this show is going so great. Why do I feel like Don may be asking Phil to be on his show? I, I don't know where this came from, but uh, I know for a fact that uh, I'm loving it, and anybody that spent time in the Middle East... <laughs> is loving it as well, and they know exactly what you guys are talking about. And uh, the good, the bad, and the Army. So, back to you, Philip. Well, uh, I'll pick up sort of where uh, Doc Moeller just uh, left off, and that is uh, about my departure from there. Uh, I, I did a... Uh, about a 13-page paper about uh, my trip out of Saudi Arabia. But suffice it to say, our saying was, uh, if you give me one hour to pack to leave here, I'll give you 59 minutes of change. Uh, (laughs) 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 We did not. uh, You know, I guess... some of the ambiguity ambiguity was gone by the time the doc got there in December, but we had been there uh, three extra months, and uh, so we were uh, basically, uh, you know, no one would answer, how long are we going to be here? Uh, are we going to fight? Uh, what exactly are we doing? Uh, and uh, I think you know, a lot of these questions had already been decided, but of course, you know, the national objectives are going to tip our hand. Um, and, you know, and of course, being flying Mohawks and being an intelligence collection battalion, uh, you know, we had plenty to do that was, uh, that was not, you know, didn't, didn't require combat. We, we had to do our mission. I guess, you know, just like the medical folks too. You know, they, they still had people to treat. Uh, they had, still had, you know, unfortunately, you know, troops getting hurt in accidents and things and people getting sick. You know, there's plenty to do. Uh, and so the same thing for us. But we, you know, we lingered under this ambiguity how long you're going to be there. And, of uh, course, that, all the wives wanted to know, when do I get my husband back? Did, did uh, either one of so, you ever run into a rumor mill in the army well i'll tell you about that the uh the executive officer of our battalion was uh uh, well he was uh, not exactly the greatest specimen and so uh we chose to leave him behind and we gave him the dubious distinction of being the rear echelon commander uh while we were gone and Somehow he put out to our wives uh, through the, the wives' network that uh, we would only be gone for six months. And when it was discovered that he had put that out, and, and the wives were now telling that to their husbands, and the husbands were saying, we have no such guarantee, there was a great, I think they call it a kerfuffle uh, over the whole thing. Also, he originally gave out the wrong... Uh, Army post office zip code for our unit, and uh, so the wives were sending packages and writing letters that were going maybe to somewhere, you know, uh, Germany. So, uh, <clears throat> anyway, yes, rumor mill, and it was very difficult. And you know, the soldiers go through some difficult times. Uh, I had a I had a soldier whose uh, wife basically told him she was leaving him while we were over there, and he was an emotional mess. Uh, and you know he was one of my enlisted observers that flew in the Mohawk, and, and 
you know, he was such a mess we, we couldn't have him flying. Um, that was that was bad. But to, you know, to get back to leaving uh, when I when they said I could leave, you know, our battalion commander, uh, well, our, our company commander, Mike Drum, he uh, he said to me that I could, you know. If uh, if I wanted to deploy one of those Mohawks flying back through Europe and et cetera back to the states, that you know I was welcome to take that flight, or uh, I could go back on the advance party. And I told him, whatever's going to put me in the United States one second earlier, uh, I want to be on that mission. So I got to be the. Uh, the advance party going home. Uh, I guess. And just like uh, Doc Moeller said when he got the banger and he was the ranking officer on that 747, I was also the ranking officer on the um, C-141 luxury liner of the United States Air Force going back to, um, back to Fort Hood. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to send a copy of my report to uh, Doc Moore for him to read. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, so, yeah, well, we, I had a, retur- uh, a, a return trip similar to yours. Uh, we had a nurse anesthetist in our unit. Uh, her name was Annie. And she had jumped through all the hoops, and she had a multi-engine commercial license. And uh, she was aware that I was driving bulldozers and trucks and wanted to know how come I was Mr. Adventure. And she said, is there any way we could go over and look at the uh, Apaches? And we, we came across a sign that said no trespassing, and I, I just walked. It was on an airfield. I just walked through it, and she said, how, how did you just have the guts to walk just through that sign? I said, well, two reasons. One, we're both lieutenant colonels, and the other is you're a woman. And I introduced her to uh, uh, some of the pilots, and the next time Annie was appeared in front of my tent, she says, I've been flying front seat as we were ferrying Apaches down to the port. Well, the story doesn't end. When we boarded the 747, I was talking to one of the pilots, and of course, I had about six hours of instruction in a Cessna 150, and uh, I embellished some stories, like my last day that I took a flight lesson. But at any rate, uh, the pilot said, would you like to sit in the jump seat, the same one that you sat in? And I said, I really would really love it, but there's somebody who's earned the right to sit there. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to go get one of our anesthetists, a nurse who is a commercial pilot with a multi-engine rating. And I went back, and Annie was sitting in front of the seats, and I said, the adventure isn't over. I got you right back in the cockpit. So it was kind of funny that I had the opportunity, but I, I, I gave my seat to someone who had earned the right to sit there. So she was just floating the entire time across the ocean. Uh, well, that, that's... So that was your return flight. You returned from yeah, in a yep. commercial. Yeah, we yeah we got to be. Go ahead. We landed in uh, Italy again. I think uh, wherever where we landed, <laughs> and I knew uh, my family was waiting. But I also knew that if I told somebody I was having chest pain, I would be in Italy for two weeks recovering from nothing. But. <laughs> Because that's what I was assigned when I was in in Europe. When I was assigned in Europe, we were near that place, and I thought, "Oh my!" Just <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to pull rank and fake an illness, but but it did cross my mind. <laughs> oh my! Well, uh, yeah. So when I when we came back, we were on a uh, a U.S. Air Force. Uh, C-141 Charlie uh, Starlifter, I think they call it. Uh, And it it, it was basically a cargo airplane with four extraordinarily loud straight-type jet engines. Uh, And it was just 
slightly more quiet inside than it was on the outside of that airplane. And they put what they call a comfort pallet in there, which is nothing more than a, uh, a false floor that they roll on there that's, uh, that's got these uh, airline seats bolted to the floor. Uh, they're all rear-facing, and there are no windows. And uh, they were about as comfortable as a, a steel folding chair. And uh, so that, that was my luxury ride back. They, they flew us to uh, from Saudi Arabia to, um, to someplace in England. And it was Easter Sunday morning. Uh, in 1991, I think it was April 1st, 1991. And we were, uh, <clears throat> went to the, uh, they put us, they let us sit in the, in the terminal, but of course, we didn't have any immigration paperwork, and we didn't, and we all had weapons, and, you know, couldn't roam around, so they put us in this kind of holding area, and there were, some vending machines there if you happen to be traveling with some British coins. Uh, or <laughs> you, you can sit and watch the, uh, the bad Sunday morning cartoons uh, and there was no ability to change the channel on TV. So we sat there for what seemed like an eternity while they went and got a fresh crew to fly the 141 back to McGuire Air Force Base. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. How did you enjoy England? Oh, I don't know. I was, uh... Well, I flew back from Vietnam on uh, a C-141, and I don't remember the ride. I don't remember the seat. All I remember is getting the daylights out of Vietnam. None of the guys... They started mortaring the freaking airway. When we were... We just... The guys was kind of backed off on the power like he wasn't sure and everybody goes just go for it dude we just he obviously was in the cockpit we didn't give a damn we you know just get this thing in the air none of this i don't remember what the seats felt like i don't remember the noise i just remember getting the hell out of there you know i I enjoyed every minute of 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 the ride home I, i made it memorable it was 23 hours and i was awake the whole time just getting out of vietnam so uh yeah right and that was a spec five so we had the pretty much standard rough rider seats none of us cared and i think they threw a sea rat at us just on the way home i don't know and don't care the whole ride was just you know when you've been counting 365 days off and you now you've only got to count count down 23 hours no man uh, i love that star lifter i don't leave it a war zone comfort is just a minor thing well as you recall from our conversation last night uh, i won't go into my personal medical details but i was in a little bit of discomfort so we should say uh at the end of the war i did not receive a purple heart for my injuries however uh, you recall what I talked about? Uh, basically, yeah, but only in a so, general sense. Uh, well, I was just saying, uh, our missions were nine hours uh, of flying in a single mission. They're 14 hours from brief to debrief. And uh, that nine hours was nine hours strapped in uh, a Martin Baker ejection seat and so and I flew a mission every other day and consequently uh, by the end of that uh, conflict by the time they signed that peace treaty the flight surgeon had grounded me for hemorrhoids so I was uh, it was not very comfortable going home but I was more than overjoyed to be going home despite what seemed like um an eternal uh, stop in uh, England to be, you know, put in a cage or a fishbowl or whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah. But I, anyway, I would, and people were telling us, when you get back to the States, 
people are going to be uh, just slapping your back and buying you beers. And, you know, well, so when we got to McGuire Air Force Base, there was nobody to slap our backs. And they let us go and hang out in the snack bar, which was closed until about an hour before we left. It was Easter Sunday morning. So all the people that were thrilled to, to greet the uh, returning troops had taken that Sunday to selfishly go to church. And so we were <laughs> basically we were unheralded. Uh, yeah. So uh, that, that was my returning home uh, sort of thing. It wasn't all that auspicious. And, well, uh, we had to stay. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Go ahead. I want to hear that. Uh, we, when, when, when the war ended, the troops like you that came first, they wanted to get out first. So we were, uh, you know, told to hang around. And so the uh, docs in the tent, pharmacists and nurses, whatever, uh, there were units pulling out and they were throwing junk away. And I've always enjoyed <laughs> dumpster diving. But they had like there was there were no games there was nothing to do and you know I didn't have any war trophies so I just would walk a couple miles and dive in the unit dumpsters it wasn't garbage it was trash so anyway but there's nothing to do in a war zone well I I walked back and then an orthopedic surgeon and a general surgeon goes where do you go at night to get all this stuff and I said you have to go dumpster diving they said <laughs> they came from wealthy families they, they said what the hell is dumpster diving I said well come on I'll show come you on. so <laughs> that night we went out <laughs> and to see guys I'm sure they're multi-millionaires now they were thrilled they never dumpster dive and got neat stuff <laughs> to this day I still correspond with the general surgeon and he he just was thrilled. His his lifestyle never included getting stuff for free, and uh, so we got board games for the nurses to play. And we brought them back and model airplane kits that they, you know rec services had bought and all that stuff. And then I also found some Iraqi canteens and helmets in the dumpster. And wonderful. <laughs> and they had thrown a bunch of army blankets away in there, and they also threw duffel bags. Well, the post office said you could ship as many duffel bags you wanted home for a dollar. <laughs> I I still have a supply of army blankets from the dumpster diving days. I'm never too proud to dive into it. <laughs> Junkyards and dumpsters are some of my favorite places. <laughs> well, I'm sure, yeah, and, you know, being there like that in those conditions, it, it kind of changes your perspective, you know, and so these guys who never wanted for anything uh, suddenly, you know, had their priorities reoriented. Uh, it was, there were two sur- three surgeons, uh, who orthopedic surgeons, and when we got ready to jump into Iraq, you know, they took all the tents down, and so they found a very large car- cardboard box uh, to live in, to exist in, to get out out of the sand and the storms. And uh, the study, the story has a funny twist because on the way up to the war, they were just saying, I, I can't believe I'm in the Army. We're, we're sleeping in a freaking cardboard box. I mean, how low does life get? On the way home, when they said we're going back to that same staging area, I just happened to be sitting next to him. And a guy leans back and says, to him, Hey, Bob, do you think we can still get our cardboard box? <laughs> If you two guys haven't brought back 
some memories to folks that are listening and will be listening. I'll buy you a breakfast at the Waffle House. Uh, All right. This is just, you know, I'm telling you, this has been been fantastic. I I love the stories. All right. Both of you I respect and uh, know that you're extremely intelligent. And I think at one time or the other I've asked this question. But after listening to you all today, can you name one veteran that you know of that can tell only one story? Don, you've already gone through about 25 stories today. (laughs) That many? I still got two more. How much time do we have, Dave? (laughs) Well, we'll fit them in on your show. Let me take back control of the show, and I I just want to take us in a new direction. Uh, And and that is something more serious, and that is uh, the number of veterans that are committing suicide uh, that are suffering with PTSD, and it is really heartbreaking. And if you know of anybody who uh, is in danger of this, I I beg of you, to get help for them, uh, call the, uh, the veteran hotline and get them some, uh, some help. Um, there are all sorts of things. You know, in the hospital they have code blue, right? That means, you know, someone's heart has stopped beating and uh, they, 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 everything, all the stops are pulled out and all hands on deck to, to take care of this situation. Something similar goes on uh, with the veterans hotline. Uh, they will do extraordinary efforts uh, if they know someone's in danger uh, of taking his own life. And so, Doc, uh, I know that you've done quite a bit of uh, work and research and uh, actual healing of veterans that have PTSD. Uh, and uh, I just want you to take a moment to talk about uh Please don't talk about the difficulties we've had because you and I have a plan to settle that. Yeah, uh, that's not that's not important. We're here to build up our veterans. The, the very good news is there, there are two essential things that aren't real commonly known. Number one is moral injury, and moral injuries uh, overlap, especially combat PTSD. Not that you know our first responders, firemen are right up there with combat. Folks, when the police have to draw weapons, most of the time their lives are in danger. So they don't necessarily uh, have the same percentage of moral injuries. But when you get PTSD, you need to let you, and we talked about this on the Veterans Place, you need to let your psychologist know, you go, hey, there's this thing called moral injury. And if you have symptoms like shame and guilt and feelings of betrayal and other things like that, those are moral injuries, and they they come along with and associated with PTSD. They're a different set of diagnostic uh, parameters. They're, they're not exactly the same, but if you have a coexisting moral injury uh, with PTSD, uh, you need to get that taken care of by talking to your chaplain of your choice. Uh, they do not try and convert you to a different religion or take control of your life. That is not their purpose. They're trained to talk about uh, getting over and how to heal those moral injury wounds because moral injury wounds can perpetuate the PTSD wounds, some of the, on those, the scale of the, you know, things they used to diagnose. And the second thing I want to talk about is that I'm, I'm concerned right now with uh, oral health and veterans with PTSD. There's at least 60 papers that talk about the effects on the oral system. It's not just teeth hanging in a jaw. It's the oral system. The oral system's connected to the head and neck. And you can have headaches, jaw aches, temperament, or joint, that's your jaw joint problems, achy teeth. I've had that stuff when I have PTSD. And there's help for that. But it's found in the dental arena. And I designed 
by the God's grace, I worked the puzzle and did the research on myself and designed a, a, a very thick, looks like a football mouth guard, but it varies in thickness depending how tall you are. Like the, the ladies will have a much thinner one. But the point is, about 90% of the people, uh, the, in veterans, whatever police officers we treat, have a beneficial response to it, as in no more nightmares when you uh, go to sleep at night or almost totally extinguished, no more headaches when you get up in the morning. Remember, my final comment is PTSD is a pan-systemic disorder. It can affect, affect your heart, your endocrine system, your immune system, obviously your nervous system. Well, your jaws and your oral system, your, your chewing apparatus is connected to your neck, so the VA, did, I'm trying to convince them that we really need to get on board with oral health because it's critical. Up to 90% of the soldiers with PTSD have some manifestation of, uh, of an oral health problem. And, and I'll leave it at that. But there is hope. It, make sure you check about moral injuries. And, and also get a support group. It's Don't be embarrassed. You didn't ask to get PTSD. You didn't ask to be exposed to horrendous things. So have a little team, you know, your girlfriend, your significant other, your mom, dad. Just uh, check in with them. If you say, I think I'm getting too close to the edge, it's, it's important that you identify that and, and, and let your support group take over from there to get you help if you, if you don't feel like doing it yourself. But there is help, and there, there, it's a disorder, just like getting shot and getting a purple heart. It's just actually PTSD, depending on the severity, can be much more devastating to a life than than, than a flesh wound. Well, thank you very much, Doc. I, I appreciate that. And as you know, we have a plan to uh, to reorient the VA uh, in a, in regards to oral health. And so um, I will say, uh, if you are a veteran and you need help uh, with the VA claim for disability, uh, I highly encourage you to contact a service officer from one of the many service organizations, the DAV, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the uh, American Legion, the service officers that can help you. A lot of paperwork. They do it all for you. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful service provided by these veteran organizations. And I, the, and the, the VA is a horrible bureaucracy. There's all sorts of benefits there for veterans that are, they have no idea. Uh, people don't, people don't know. Go to one of these meetings and of uh, the, of the Legion or DAV or VFW. You'll find what, what's being talked about are benefits and updates to the status of various benefits. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, there's so much that's available. And, uh, and I, I implore you, if you have some time on your hands, volunteer with one of these organizations. We need drivers for, uh, to drive the vans to take, yep, to take veterans to their, um, medical appointments. There's all sorts of opportunities to volunteer. So please, uh, volunteer. And David, thank you very much. And I know I'm running long, so you have it now. No, we're doing fine, and I want to thank both of you gentlemen for getting together. And, Don, was I philosophizing correctly that there is a slight possibility you might get desperate for a guest and have a Lieutenant Colonel retired Philip Forsberg on your show? Sure. He, he flies one of my favorite aircraft, the, Mo- the Mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I used the block. <laughs> well, you know, you guys have just been tremendous. This, uh, I, I started the station in 2005, and I can honestly say that this has been the best show we've ever broadcast. And anybody that served, anybody that served in Nam or served in any place, you all have scratched the surface and scratched their memories of a lot of different things. So 
my heart goes out to you, and I thank you ever so much. So with that being said, we got to wrap it up and get out of here. Thank you all. Bye-bye, David. Thank Bye. you. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.